Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, August 26th. The seven western states in the Colorado River Basin are still working to find a way to conserve an unprecedented amount of water. The river's two largest reservoirs are approaching critically low levels. Native people have lived in the southwest for thousands of years, and have traditional ways to manage water that worked for them. When settlers arrived, they upended that system. Now, with so much pressure to find a solution, tribes in the Colorado River Basin are trying to elevate indigenous approaches to water management. Megan Mykofsky from Arizona Public Media reports on how one tribe is doing that. It's a warm morning in the San Javier District, part of the Tahana Atham Nation just south of Tucson. Giselle Ramon Sabran is a doctoral candidate at the University of Arizona. She's finishing a dissertation on the history of land and water here. She drives me out to a quiet spot near the Santa Cruz River. There are tall trees making archways and providing shade from the sun. Some elders in the community, like Ramon Sabran's grandma, remember coming to play in the water here as kids. I can't even fathom like how she's like, yeah, we used to play in it and, you know, and had all these lush trees. This is a restoration project where they brought water back only recently. The Tahana Atham and their ancestors have farmed in this spot for millennia and had an extensive and complex canal system to do it. But when settlers arrived, they brought an approach to water management better suited to the greener places they'd come from. They built large reservoirs and cut deep ditches that monsoons made even deeper. Yes, they introduced new things to us like cattle and horses and metal tools, but again, we knew what grew here. We knew how to live off of the land. Over time, this section of the Santa Cruz River dried up and the tribe's farms suffered. It took a lawsuit and federal legislation in the 70s and 80s to settle the Tahana Atham Nation's claim to water and eventually deliver Colorado River water here to make up for what was lost. You know, we were, were pretty much making a stance and saying, what you did is not right. And, you know, we want you to understand that and we want you to pay for the damages and the loss that you have caused us. They used that water to recharge the aquifer, which they used to run water around the restoration site. Ramon Sabran says it wasn't until just a few years ago that she got to see water flow here again, like what her grandma had described. Western tribes like the Tahana Atham have always known how to manage scarce water supplies. But the broader culture, and even the federal government, is starting to see the value of traditional ecological knowledge in all kinds of natural resource issues. Oh, I, I love those stories because, I mean, it, it's the magic of water. 
Daryl Vigil is a co-facilitator of the Water and Tribes Initiative, a group that works to make sure tribes like the Tahanotham are represented when future decisions are made about the Colorado River. The 100-year-old Colorado River Compact, which parceled out rights to the water to the seven states that rely on it, explicitly left out tribes. And Vigil says rectifying that injustice is crucial, not just to restore ecosystems and farmland like the Tanaatham have done, but to get clean water to those who don't have it. It's a basic right as a citizen in this country, yet, you know, 70, 80,000 Navajos still haul water on a daily basis. He says tribes should be allowed the luxury of putting water rights to use that the government has allowed others. If a tribe utilizes its and develops its water rights, it's usually for something that's, you know, benefiting, you know, a whole lot more than, than the, we think it's benefiting. And that includes bringing water back to places where it stopped flowing, like the spot on the Santa Cruz River where I met Giselle Ramon Sauberon. Once I got older and was able to come down here and see that, it's like, oh, I could make those connections and, you know, in a sense, I put myself, you know, in those stories that my grandma was telling. I'm Megan Myskowski with Arizona Public Media. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by Arizona Public Media and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. You can hear more about this story and other southwestern water issues on the AZPM podcast, Tapped. And stay up to date with all the latest updates on the Colorado River at KUNC.org. People have always feared the unknown, and that fear transforms some animals into monsters in our minds, like sharks in the ocean or rattlesnakes in the West. The Mountain West News Bureau's Madeline Beck set out to learn more about those villainized snakes. Old Westerns often share one very similar bad guy. You're pretty good with that handgun, ain't you? That's from 1967 movie The Last Challenge. But the mythologizing of rattlesnakes hasn't gone away. Even the 2011 animated movie Rango made the rattlesnake the bad guy. All right, Sheriff, make your move. Some say movies are partially to blame for the rattlesnake's bad rap. Second only to the Bible, Hollywood has done more to damage the reputation of the humble snake than any other single factor on Earth. That's David Jensen, who owns Wasatch Snake Removal in Utah. His colleagues work around much of the state helping relocate snakes. He argues rattlesnakes aren't evil monsters. Evil's not a force found in nature. Okay? There are no evil animals or clouds or trees or plants or water or whatever. Uh, evil's a, a human construct. He notes that in Utah, it's generally illegal to kill any of the five species of rattlesnake there. Some other species are protected, like Wyoming's midget-fated rattlesnake and the New Mexico ridge-nosed rattlesnake, but not everyone follows the law. You even need a permit to move these venomous critters in many states, which is where organizations like Jensen's or wildlife officials come in to help. We remove the snake and return it safely back to habitat under a license from the Division of Wildlife Resources. However, you can kill rattlesnakes in Utah if you simply think they're a threat to your person or property. And that rule is the same across much of the Mountain West, from states like Montana and Nevada that hardly have any rattlesnake protections, to states like Colorado, which has its own snake hunting season. 
But how dangerous are these noisy snakes really? The actual threat to humans is extraordinarily low. The American Association of Poison Control Centers recorded about a thousand people who were bit by a rattlesnake last year. One of them died. That's a fairly typical year. Those numbers are nearly as low as U.S. shark fatalities. And the poison control centers say those who did die either didn't get antivenom in time or had an allergic reaction to the venom. However, you should still be wary. This summer, a six-year-old boy in Colorado died from a rattlesnake bite, and around 10% of those bit still faced life-threatening effects, including nerve damage and amputation. Out in the foothills in Boise, Idaho, Christina Parker and I are poking around bushes looking for rattlesnakes with help from a metal snake grabbing tool. Yeah, this is sneaky. <laughs> got rocks, got shrubs. Parker is with the U.S. Geological Survey and has studied rattlesnakes. She says the species we'd most likely find in southern Idaho, the Great Basin rattlesnake, is pretty docile. It's one of her favorite snake species, partially because it is so persecuted and misunderstood, like so many other kinds of rattlesnakes. The snakes are more afraid of you than you are of them. Rattlesnakes are important to the ecosystem, eating vermin and cutting down on diseases they carry. Oftentimes, Parker says you can discourage them from coming into your yard just by making sure it isn't inviting to prey, like rodents, or doesn't have shady hiding spaces, like under a deck. However... If they do come into your yard, you can call wildlife officials to help move them. And if you do get bit... Don't tourniquet. Don't try sucking the venom out. Don't try any of those snake bite kits. Instead, make sure there isn't anything tight around the swelling bite area and clean it off with soap and water. Call 911. Then call poison control centers. Poison control knows a lot better on care for venom injection than a lot of medical doctors because a lot of medical doctors don't have snake bites that often. Beyond that, just stay as calm as possible and get to the hospital. And one last thing, that old saying about baby rattlers being more deadly because they can't control the amount of venom they inject? That is 100% a myth. Parker says rattlesnakes innately know how much venom to use. They need it to digest prey. And a baby snake bite may even be less of a threat because those little bodies have less venom. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. If you're bitten by a rattlesnake, you can call the poison helpline at 1-800-222-1222 or visit poisonhelp.org. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau a regional reporting collaboration. Find more stories at KUNC.org. Every week, KUNC gets an update from our colleagues at the Colorado Sun to see what stories they're covering. This week, KUNC's Bo Baker spoke with Colorado Sun editor and co-founder Larry Rickman about Forever Chemicals, wild mushrooms, and more. Let's start, Larry, with perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. These so-called forever chemicals are getting more attention lately. They're showing up in the drinking water of some front-range communities, and now state regulators are pursuing testing for PFAS in biosolids. What's the latest? Yeah, so Sun reporter Michael Booth's been talking to state water quality experts about these forever chemicals. 
they're used in all kinds of products, including nonstick cooking pans, and they help resist heat, oil, grease, and water. And as you say, they've been found in our drinking water, but also in Colorado's fish, and at this point, even people as well. So now Colorado regulators say wastewater treatment plants may have to start testing for the presence of these chemicals and biosolids as early as next year. Mike reports that those plants may be required to investigate upstream sources of these toxic substances. He spoke to, to longtime residents out in the eastern plains, and they're worried about all of the biosolids that have been spread on many farms uh, as fertilizer over several decades. State water quality officials say a grant program is open to help communities test for these chemicals and groundwater in these areas where biosolids have been spread. There's currently no state requirement to test for the forever chemicals and biosolids, but wastewater agencies that do test for them have been finding forever chemical levels that independent experts uh, call concerning. And it seems like Colorado is starting to pick up speed on regulating PFAS. Is there any real federal guidance on these substances, Larry? You know, not much, and that's really part of the problem. So the state is trying to uh, to tackle the problem. They've put together a uh, a working group to to study it and issue some recommendations. And it's just a it's kind of a scary and, and fascinating topic. And and we're going to stay on top of this story as it uh, as it develops. Let's hit the slopes next. Larry, Vale Resorts is going to limit its daily lift tickets. They say it's about managing the guest experience. Sun reporter Jason Belvins is tracking this. What are some of the details here? Yeah, Jason says you better plan ahead if you're hoping to ski or snowboard at any of the Vale Resort properties this year. That includes Beaver Creek, Breckenridge, Keystone, and Vale. Uh, the company announced this week that it will limit the number of these high-dollar walk-up daily lift tickets sold every day of the coming season. Many resorts, including the Vail properties, saw just overwhelming crowds last year as a record number of skiers and snowboarders headed to the outdoors. The larger crowds, combined with a worker shortage, led to long lift lines and frustrations for those who had to wait. Last season, Vail uh, resorts limited walk-up sales on t- just 23 days during three holiday periods. This year, it's going to be every day. And uh, these walk-up uh, lift tickets can cost more than $225 at the company's largest resorts. That's what they uh, ran last year. So they're going to be capped daily after online limits are reached. Vail says it uh, doesn't expect to sell that often, but we'll have to watch and see. And these changes won't affect Im- or won't impact uh, pass holders, will they, Larry? No, it won't affect uh, season pass holders, employees, or skiers taking lessons. Gotcha. It seems mushrooms are all the rage these days. We've got magic mushrooms on the ballot this fall, and reporting from The Sun says people are getting out to learn about wild mushroom foraging. Tell us more, Larry. Yeah, reporter uh, Jennifer Brown has a really fun story about the other kind of mushrooms. Uh, Mushroom hunting is growing in popularity in Colorado, in part because the pandemic sent, again, more people outside. But last year was also the best mushroom year in the Rocky Mountains in at least 30 years. Jen hiked through the Mount Evans wilderness recently with folks from the Colorado Mycological Society, their group of more than a thousand mushroom seekers who meet for weekend outings and travel to fungi festivals around the state. They help the newbies uh, figure out which wild mushrooms are safe to eat and which ones to avoid. But they also what they want people to understand the whole biology of mushrooms and their role in Colorado's ecosystem in this region alone. There are an estimated 5,000 species of mushrooms, so there's there's a lot to know. Um, last year's monsoon rains uh, created an epic mushroom season, 
which we're in the middle of right now. It's it's prime season right now in August. This season's still great thanks to our recent late summer rain, but uh, it doesn't quite compare to last year. I'm not much of a mushroom hunter, but finding some morels in the woods has me dreaming. Larry, thanks for sharing these stories with us. That was KUNC's Bo Baker speaking with the Colorado Suns' Larry Rickman. You can catch their conversations live every Tuesday evening during KUNC's All Things Considered. We're heading into the last weekend of August, and some of you might be trying to decide what to watch. A new movie, Spin Me Round, tells a story about a young restaurant manager sent to Italy by her company, only to find something other than food education. For KUNC, film critic Howie Mopshevitz, the picture lies somewhere between comedy and horror, but not even the filmmakers seem to know. Because of supply problems and other shortages, it may be hard to get auto parts or cat food, but there's no shortage of movies about young people, often Americans, who travel to the south of France or to Tuscany to find food and culture and love, but ultimately they find themselves in either profound or trivial ways. From the high-end Call Me By Your Name to a slew of lesser pictures about dissatisfied chefs, aimless tourists, and other characters fleeing humdrum lives. The okay films are nice travelogues. The not-okay ones can make you cringe. Spin Me Round veers in its own variant. Amber, Allison Brie, has a food world job, but she's no fancy chef. She manages a chain restaurant in Bakersfield, California called Tuscan Grove, where the Alfredo sauce comes in big squeezable plastic bottles from a corporate supplier, and her job demands that she follow corporate procedure with not a smidgen of imagination. But for some reason, this dreary company has a place in Tuscany where it sends what are called exemplary managers, presumably to inspire them with things like the authenticity of cooking, which the corporation, of course, avoids. From the look on Amber's face, she's expecting some inspiration, but the audience knows right off that's not going to happen. One clue is that the van from the airport glides right by the promised villa and deposits Amber in a motel that's the equal of the food they assemble. Craig, the group leader, reads his inspiring welcome in a mechanical voice from note cards in his hand. And when the cooking teacher mentions the herb marjoram, the exemplary managers think he's talking about margarine. And then the slick owner of the company pops in, comes on to Amber in the middle of class, invites her to his yacht, and mild-mannered Amber comes aboard. So how's the program treating you? You having fun? Um, it's awesome. It's so awesome. Honestly, it's just so nice to be in another country. Right. It must be strange for you never having been outside of the States, huh? Yeah. I sometimes take it for granted. Is Amber stupid or is she crafty? You'll never know, and apparently the filmmakers don't know either. The movie goes wrong at every opportunity. Probably because Molly Shannon from Saturday Night Live is in it, Spin Me Round reminds me of the last two minutes of the hundreds of SNL sketches that lose direction and run too long. Eventually, the whole business of this movie turns from bland, maybe comedy, into semi-comic horror, but it's a fitful transition. For a long time, the movie's just unclear. You can't tell if characters are frightened or if they're naive and out of touch. But then come blood, death, semi-comic sex, and wild boars running across the landscape. So maybe it is a horror film, comic style. 
What the makers of Spin Me Round don't get is that suspense does not arise from events that are simply arbitrary or quirky. Alfred Hitchcock, who knew what he was doing, said suspense comes from the audience knowing what the characters did not know. Viewers know what's up in Hitchcock's vertigo before James Stewart's character does, and there's plenty of anxiety in watching Stewart stumble his way to the truth. In Spin Me Round, nobody, not viewers, not characters, have a clue, so you get a mishmash of unconnected stuff. You could argue that the picture's a spoof, that canny young audiences will find clever, the riffs on characters stuck in blandness, mind-numbing work, and a world of random events. I think that's arrogant, and I think the movie radiates contempt for characters who aren't privileged or rich or hip. It's the kind of movie people might laugh at because they don't know what else to do. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mofshevitz. Hear Howie on Friday afternoons on KUNC. This and more film reviews are on our website, KUNC.org. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If there's a story you'd like to hear us cover on Colorado Edition, send us an email at coloradoedition at KUNC.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you for spending some time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. See you on Wednesday for a special episode.